invite you to take your Bible and open it with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 4. Book of 1 Peter chapter 4. If you're looking in the Pew Bible in front of you, you should find it on page 1296. This past uh, Thursday marked the 75th anniversary of the U.S. atomic bombing of the Japanese city Hiroshima. Today, actually, 75 years since they dropped the second one on, on Nagasaki. Um, all through history, uh, humans have created new ways to wage war against one another. and. Um, I'm not here to comment on the, the ethics of that or anything like that, but simply to say one thing that is, is really clear is that God does not tremble at what we can do and what we can make. He is the one who made the Adam, and he's not moved to fear by anything we find to do with the things that he created out of nothing. Here's how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 147, verses 10 and 11. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. God is not impressed by our strength. He is not impressed with the things that we harness. He takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. And so the question that I want us to ask this morning is how do we fight for hope in God? What are the weapons that we use in that spiritual battle? That's a question that Peter is going to answer for us this morning. So let's read in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. We're going to pause there and pray. Lord, we pray that you would bless the hearing of your word. We trust, Spirit of God, that you will work through this word that uh, we're not depending right now on my cleverness or creativity or eloquence, but we are relying on you. And so, Lord, would you open our eyes to see, would you open our ears to hear and our minds to understand and our wills to obey? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to just cut straight to the the key command of this passage this morning is in verse 1, where Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That's a really weird phrase if you kind of stop and think about it. Arm yourselves. So we're in a battle, we're in a war, 
and Peter's telling us you need to take up weapons in this war, but the weapon you take up is not a horse or a sword or a bow or an atomic bomb or anything like that. It is a mindset. It's a certain way of thinking, specifically the same way of thinking that Christ had when He suffered in the flesh. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, the same way of thinking that He had when He suffered in the flesh. So if you want to be prepared for the battle that you're going to face in life, it matters what your mindset is. It matters the way you think. And this is not merely a way of saying that you need to practice positive thinking. It's a way of saying that you need to practice God-centered thinking, that you need to have God at the center of everything you think, that He and His truth, His Word, His will, His justice, His holiness, all of those things need to be the lens through which you view the world and through which you view history and through which you view your own circumstances and through which you view the future. So here's how I want to try to summarize the, the big idea of this passage, that God's people need a God-centered perspective. God's people need a God-centered perspective. We need to have God's will and God's justice at the center of everything that we think. That's another way of saying that we need to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking that Jesus had. What does that mean, though? When I was you know, wrestling with this passage, the question that I kept coming back to was, okay, what was the way of thinking that Jesus had when He suffered in the flesh? What characterized His thinking? And so what I did was I went back and I, I reread the first three chapters of this letter. I thought, well, surely if Peter is telling us that you need to have the same way of thinking as, as Jesus did, then he's probably given us some clues about what he means by that. So I went back and I tried to ask myself, okay, what can I see about what Peter's saying about Jesus and what does that tell me about his way of thinking? And I came up with, with basically two common themes that Peter returns to over and over again. The first is that Jesus entrusted everything to God who judges justly. He, he entrusted everything to God's just judgment. So hold your place here and glance back maybe just a page or two to chapter 2, verse 23. I want you to see this. I want you to see where I'm, where I'm gleaning this from. I didn't come up with this. It's right here in the letter. Chapter 2, verse 23, Peter says, when he, that is Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So there you have where Peter's saying, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. And then he's saying to us, you're going to have to be ready to be reviled. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Peter's saying to us, when you suffer, you're going to have to be ready to do that same thing. And how did Jesus do that? He did that by entrusting himself and by entrusting all things to the one who judges justly. Jesus knew that the people who are reviling me right now, the people who are persecuting me right now, they're going to have to give an account. And so I'm going to just live with that end in mind, and I'll let, I'll let it get sorted out in the end. So that's, that's one common theme, that Jesus entrusted everything to God's just judgment. And the second is that He always pursued God's will. In every situation, He asked, what could I do that would please my Father? 
Look at chapter 3, verse 18. This is where you can see this probably the most clearly. We read this verse just last week. Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that... So here's why he did that. Here's why he suffered for sins, even though he was righteous, in order that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. And Peter's already told us earlier in the letter that this was God's will, to bring people into his family, to to make them be his beloved people. So Jesus suffered to the point of death so that he might carry out God's will of bringing unrighteous sinners into the family of God so that they're no longer called unrighteous, but they are called beloved. We're going to see those same themes here in chapter 4. God's will is primary and his judgment is certain and unbiased. Those two truths are essential for a God-centered perspective. So we'll start with one and then we'll go to the other. The first truth we're going to look at is that God's will is primary. God's will is primary. I want you to notice how Peter contrasts the will of God with what unbelievers want to do. He says in verse 2, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, that is to say, however long your life is, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And then he says in verse 3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Now, Peter uses the word Gentiles a few times in this letter, not to refer to an ethnic group, but to refer to unbelievers, people who are outside God's covenant people. And so he says, The time for doing what unbelievers want to do that's past. For the rest of the time in the flesh, we're supposed to live for what God wants us to do, for what is His will. And of course, he gives some examples of what it is that unbelievers want to do. This is in the middle of verse 3. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Now, there's, there's a lot of ways we could try to tackle those six things that he mentions, but I want to try to break them down by saying that some of these sinful actions are driven by sinful desires. So we have this sinful desire inside of us, and that compels us to do an action that is sinful. So the words sensuality and passions, for example, those could refer to sexual sins, but they also include any other kind of sin that arises from, from some desire that is not moderated. For instance, there's nothing inherently sinful about sexual desire. What makes it sinful is when it's practiced outside the context of marriage. There's nothing wrong with, with being hungry or with eating, but gluttony is sinful. That's, that, that is a desire that is not moderated by God's will. And of course, Peter mentions drunkenness. So the Bible routinely warns about the dangers of excess, of lacking moderation when it comes to alcohol. On the contrary, the fruit of the Spirit is what? Self-control, right? So all of those sins involve a lack of self-control. They involve uh, desires that are unchecked by God's will. So in addition to sensuality, passions, and drunkenness, he also mentions orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And the simple way of saying it is that's when those three things sort of go 
out into bigger you know, societal uh, ways. So depending on what translation you have, the phrase drinking parties may be translated as carousing or something along those lines. Carousing is one of those words that we hear, but nobody actually knows what it means. You know? So drinking parties is actually a really good translation because that's pretty much the gist of it. Um, Peter's is probably hinting at these festivals that were common in, in first century Roman culture. And what would happen is people would intentionally, in these festivals, they would intentionally engage in excess. So they would, they would, they would eat a lot, way more than they needed. They would drink a lot and get really, really drunk, and they would have sex with lots of people. And all of that, they said, was a way of thanking the gods and, and seeking their favor. So if if we, if we exercise gluttony and drunkenness and all this kind of stuff, then the gods are going to say, wow, they're really thankful for all the things we've given them, you know, for all the grain and all the, all the grapes and all that kind of stuff. And so that's why Peter includes along with that the phrase lawless idolatry because he sees it as these are, are ways that you are living without any concern for what God's will is. And so this sin was government-sanctioned, and it was even... Patriotic. Did I just die? Kind of, maybe. I'm just. I'm saying that because I'm. I'm worried about people who are listening online and they're like, "Where did he go? Do I need to get a new battery?" You think? Hello. Let's try it. All right. This is this is the first. better? No? I hear it when I do that, but there? Anything? All right. Again, eventually we're just going to have to leave him behind and say you should have been here. <laughs> uh, okay. Hey, there it is. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. All right. So where were we? Lawless idolatry, right? Uh, so, so here is, I think, the helpful way of, of thinking about it. Some sinful actions are driven by sinful desires. They come from inside my sin nature. Other sinful actions are driven by social pressure from outside me. And, and of course, many sins are driven by both, right? So it's, it's easier to, to think that the desires I have are legitimate if seemingly everybody around me does that thing. Right, if we look around and say, well, you know, I really kind of want to do this thing, and it seems like everybody else I know does that thing, well, it must be right. And so a lot of times, uh, sinful desires and social pressures kind of combine in this way, and that's the idea here. So in order to apply this to our context, um, the question we need to ask is, what are some sins that are deemed socially acceptable today? What are some things that if you look around in our culture, a lot of people accept them and maybe not even accept them and tolerate them, but actually celebrate them? And so as I was trying to, to think through this, um, of examples of this, I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll just, I'll solicit some help online. So I, I put this out in our Facebook group and, and some people came back with some good responses about sins that are you know, deemed to be socially acceptable. Um, 
two of the most common that people mentioned. Some people commented and some people uh, texted me. So in case you go back and you know read, be like, well, I don't think that was actually the most common. You don't know everything, all right? So just deal with it. Uh, but, but two of the most common were, were anger and gossip. Uh, anger uh, and gossip. Both of those sins, think about it, they're driven by sinful desires, but they also tend to be widely excused and accepted in our society. So just in order to illustrate that, think about how odd it would be, um, how odd it would come across to someone if, if they started gossiping to you about someone else. And you stopped them and said, I, I just want to stop you right there. I really don't want to engage in that. that. Some people, that would freak them out, you know. So maybe they would say, you know what, hey, you're right. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. Maybe they would get defensive and say, oh, I wasn't trying to gossip. I was just trying to tell you this thing so you can know how to pray for them, you know, or something like that. Or, or maybe they'd get angry and they'd go gossip about you to somebody else. Um, either way... It, it makes people feel uncomfortable when there is this certain thing that everybody seems to accept and then we go against it. Something that typically goes unquestioned and then we question it, it sort of makes them get really defensive and uncomfortable. The point is, if we want to do God's will, that's exactly what we must do. As, as weird as it is to say, things like orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry, those were things that went unquestioned in first century Roman culture. And so when Christians came in and said, hey, wait a minute, I don't think we should be doing this, it made people really uncomfortable. We could say the same thing about some of the other sins that people mentioned. Uh, worry was one, uh, greed, envy, gluttony. Um, in the South, it's hard to talk about Southern culture without talking about the food. I mean, how many of us raised, you got to clean your plate. You know, it doesn't matter if you're full, you got to clean your plate. So all of these sins that our society tolerates and celebrates, one way you could do it is think about your specific workplace. Think about your specific school, people in your specific age bracket. What are some things that they just expect everyone is going to do? It could be something that's related to the work itself. So at your workplace or in your profession, you know, it could be that, hey, everybody cheats on their tests, you know, or, or everybody fudges numbers to make their boss happy or whatever the case may be. Um, or it could be sins that are totally unrelated to the work. It could be, hey, everybody goes out on Friday nights and gets drunk. That's just what we do. Everybody sleeps around. Everybody lives with their boyfriend or girlfriend, and you're weird if you don't do those things. Whatever else the case may be, the point is, if we want to do the will of God, if we want to follow Him, we're going to have to swim against the current of our culture. And it's not even always actions. Sometimes there are widely held thoughts or attitudes that are simply incompatible with God's will, like hating or fearing others because of their race or their class or their citizenship status. The hard thing is that fish don't always recognize the water they're swimming in. And so a lot of these things, it's just the water we've swam in our whole life. It's the air we've breathed, and we don't think about it. It's just the way it is. That's why we need to have our minds renewed by the, the Word of God, and we need to have our consciences shaped by the will of God. That We're not just going to sort of accept that this is the way it is, but we're going to say, what is the way it should be? So one of the most fundamental things we, we could do then 
is to just evaluate ourselves. I'm not talking about necessarily, you know, going around and judging other people. I'm talking about you, your heart, your desires, the things that you do, the things that you think. Evaluate yourself, all of your habits, all of your actions, all of your words, all of your thoughts and attitudes, and submit them to this simple question. The question is, is this pleasing to God? Is this action pleasing to God? Is this thought pleasing to God? Is this attitude pleasing to God? Am I saying or doing or thinking what is easy and pleasant? Or am I saying and doing and thinking what is right? And am I evaluating what is right on the basis of God's Word? Peter says at the end of verse 1, Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's one of those phrases that you're like, what do you mean by that, Peter? Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He does not mean that suffering inherently has this purifying effect. Because there are plenty of people who have very hard lives and who have gone through a lot of suffering, and that suffering doesn't make them more holy. It makes them more hard and bitter and self-involved. Suffering does that to plenty of people. What he means is that if you are so devoted to doing the right thing that you're willing to suffer for doing that right thing, then you show that sin is not holding its grip on you. In other words, if, if, if the society around you is saying, you have to do this thing, you have to think this way, and if you don't, you're going to be ostracized. You're going to be seen as you know, weird or, or an outsider or something like that. And you say, I don't care. I'm, I'm willing to do what's right because God says it's right. That's what Peter means. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has then ceased from sin. You've, you've shown that that sin which pulls you in this direction doesn't have power over you. So there are some people um, in the world who... If they do what's right, they're going to suffer in possibly physical ways, right? They may, they may be beaten or, or something like that. They may lose their job. In our society, a lot of the ways, it's, it's not that you're going to be beaten physically. It's not that you're probably going to lose your job. Um, but it's just that you're going to experience that societal pressure to be pressed into doing this one thing instead of doing what's right. So... We have to be willing to do what's right, even if it costs us. And when we do that, we show that sin does not have a grip on us. It is, it is not holding sway over us. That doing God's will is more important to me than simply taking the path of least resistance. So that's the first component of a God-centered perspective, that conviction that God's will is primary. The second component is that God's judgment is unbiased. This conviction that God's judgment is coming and it is certain and it will be unbiased. We can't trick Him. We can't cover anything up. We can't manipulate Him into doing anything. He will judge the living and the dead, as Peter says. Now, Peter does not want us to be ignorant about what doing God's will is going to cost us. He says in verse 4, that unbelievers will be surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And because of their surprise, they may malign you. So, again, it's not always about physical persecution. 
Sometimes it can be just as hurtful and scary to be shunned, to be left out, to be called some name. We need to count the cost of following Jesus. So let's say you come to the realization. Let's say you're listening, you know, you come to the realization, you know what, I, I'm, I'm evaluating my actions and my attitudes and my thoughts, and I, I'm coming to the understanding that I've been engaging in this practice and this way of thinking that is not Christ-like. It's contrary to God's will, and I need to put it away. What's going to happen when that personal decision then begins to interact with people around you? Again, it's, it, might, it might get uncomfortable, right? Imagine unbelieving friends who say something like, well, you know, you've, you've been doing this for, we've, we've been doing this together for so long, and now suddenly you, you can't do it anymore. Or, or even believing friends who say, well, hey, listen, you know, we've been engaging in this whatever gossip or whatever, and now suddenly you're too good for it. So what's the deal? What gives? Do you think you're better than me, you know? So we need to be clear-headed that if you go against the cultural grain, you're, you're going to be maligned. If you stand up against anger, people are going to call you a snowflake or something else. If you stand up against gossip, people are going to call you holier than thou. If you stand up against greed, people are going to say you're lazy, you lack ambition. If you stand up against racism, you're going to be called a Marxist or a liberal or something like that. On and on it goes. But as Peter puts it in verse 3, the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. At some point... You have to say, it doesn't matter that pretty much everyone I know thinks this way or does this thing. It doesn't even matter that this is what I've been doing for the past however long. I have to do what is honorable and acceptable in the eyes of God because I'm going to give an account to Him. Because one day I'm going to stand before Him and He's not going to be deceived. He's not going to be fooled. I can't cover anything up. Everything that is hidden was going to be revealed. And if that makes people malign me, then so be it. Because... I'm not going to participate in that flood of debauchery that is going to lead God to be displeased with me on the last day. Now, one thing we need to say that, that I, I really think is important to make clear about is that um, it is possible to go against the stream of culture around you without having a genuinely God-centered perspective. Some people are just naturally inclined to be contrarian. That's not what Peter's talking about. There is a difference between being God-centered and being a contrarian. A contrarian is someone who thinks they're right because what they think or what they do is contrary to the consensus. Um, a God-centered perspective is someone who says, I'm going to do what's right, not because I'm not evaluating what the consensus is or not. I'm evaluating what does God's Word say? What is His will? And what is going to help me and my conscience to be able to stand before Him one day and give an account for this thing that I'm doing or saying or thinking? So a contrarian is someone who thinks they're right because everyone else is wrong. And, and that can be a sign not of godliness or of wisdom, but of, of an unteachable spirit, which is, according to the Bible, the worst kind of foolishness, the kind of, of, of idea that... I cannot be persuaded any other way. I cannot, I cannot change my mind. This is just what I think, and it's, that's it. A God-centered perspective is, is when we constantly submit our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes to the Word of God. 
where we are constantly open to the possibility that I may be wrong. I may need to change. I may need to turn and go another way. So a truly God-centered perspective is more concerned with God's will than with my own opinions. And a God-centered perspective is aware of the fact that God is the one who will judge. That ultimately, I'm not going to have to stand before other people. I'm not going to have to just live with my own conscience. I'm going to have to stand before Him. Peter says in verse 5, of the people who will malign you, they will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So if people malign you, they're going to have to give an account, but so will you. Because God's judged to, God is ready to judge the living and the dead. When you kind of like really try to put yourself into the, the argument that Peter's making here, there seems to have been this criticism that people were making about, about Christianity where they're saying, okay, you know, Christians, they abstain from all this stuff that is frankly fun to do. I mean, it's fun to have these big parties where we just all drink and get drunk and eat a lot, and it's, it's fun. And they don't, they don't participate in that stuff. And yet, they all die just like us, right? YOLO, you only live once. Um, so that, that idea is still present today. Christians, you know, you're so restrictive, you won't do these certain things, and yet you die like the rest of us. There was, there was no concept among first century Romans of a judgment that took place after death. And even though a lot of Americans have a concept of that, they don't think about it, they don't think it's ever going to happen to them. Peter reminds us both the living and the dead will be judged. In other words, the people who are alive when Christ returns, they're going to be judged, and the people who have died before He returns, they'll be judged. In other words, that's a way of saying everybody's going to be judged. Everybody's going to have to give an account to Him. And he concludes in verse 6, This is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Now, we need to, we need to make sure we don't misconstrue what he means when he says the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. Notice, basic grammar here, okay? The gospel was preached. What tense is that? Past tense. To those who are dead, what tense is that? Present tense, right? He does not say the gospel was preached to those who were dead. He's not saying that the gospel was preached to them when they were dead. He's saying the gospel was preached to them in the past and now they're dead. The gospel was preached to them while they were alive and then they died. And yet the gospel does not stop having power for them once they're dead. As Paul says in, in Romans 8, neither life nor death can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there are people, Peter says, who heard the gospel and believed the gospel while they were alive and now they've died. And what do we think about them? Is all of that, was it worth it? I mean, because they, they, they tried to follow God's will. They tried to live before the face of God, and yet they still were judged. They still died the way everybody does. That's why Peter says, even though they experience death the way all people do, they live in the Spirit the way God does. Death doesn't have the last word. God does. He's going to judge the living and the dead. So what you do before you die 
has ramifications for what happens after you die. If life is all there is, if you just live and then you die and then that's it, you may as well just do whatever you want. <laughs> I mean, you may as well just go for it. But if you know that even death is not going to spare you from God's judgment, that even if I die, I'm still going to have to give an account before God, then it is worth it to do what pleases Him rather than what pleases me or what pleases the world around me. So ultimately, having a God-centered perspective should remind us that whatever we give up in order to live for God, it will be worth it in the end. That's the takeaway. That whatever we give up in order for God, it will be worth it in the end. Peter is, is, is writing here to people who some of them were probably new believers. I mean, the way, he, the way he speaks, he implies that all these things he lists, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry, these are all things that these people had previously engaged in, and now they've stopped. And so he's writing to them, he's saying, you need to count the cost of following Jesus. And he's writing to people, you know, perhaps he's, he's hoping that there are going to be people who, who hear this who they're considering placing their faith in Christ, you need to count the cost. You need to know that some of your patterns of life, some of your relationships cannot and should not stay the same. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, when a person trusts in Christ or if a person really wants to be serious about walking with Christ, that they have to, you know, get rid of all, the, all their old friends, that's, that's usually the sign of a cult, you know, if they say you can't, you can't see your family or friends anymore, that's a, that's a red flag. That's, but that's not what Christianity says. What it says is your relationship to those people has to change from one where you're no longer participating with them in that way of life, but that you're now sort of standing back and saying, let me tell you about this new way of life that I have in Christ, and let me invite you into this way of life. So it doesn't mean that you have to get rid of all your friends. It means that some of the things that you share in common with them, you're going to have to put away if you want to follow Jesus. And that's inevitably going to change how you relate to those friends. The point is, though, it will be worth it. You can't think only about what is immediately in front of you. You need to think about eternity. You need to factor into your equation the one who will judge the living and the dead. And it's not even just about saying that, well, I can't, I can't enjoy friendship and community today because I have to lay up treasure in heaven. That's part of it. But also, in the short term, this is what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be a community in which we have fellowship with other people through a shared identity in Christ, not through participating in the same kind of sin, but by participating in the same kind of righteousness. If you follow Jesus, you may lose some things. Peter, I mean, excuse me, Jesus made that very clear, that you're going to have to deny yourself and take up your cross. You're going to have to shed some things if you want to follow me. But he also said in Mark 10, whatever you give up for the sake of the gospel, you will receive a hundredfold. And, and notice this, he didn't just say you'll receive a hundredfold in eternity. He said you'll receive a hundredfold in this time. Now that's not, that's not health and wealth, okay? Because he said, and with it, persecutions. 
The point he's making is, if, if, you, if you try to follow Jesus, if you try to please Him and do His will and, and live in light of His judgment, and that makes some people not want to be your friends anymore, you're going to receive new friends. If that makes people in your family not want to talk to you as much anymore, well, guess what? You just got a new family. That's what he means when he says you'll receive a hundredfold in this time, that when you're part of God's family, you have brothers and sisters. You have a community of people who share that identity with you that we're trying our best to follow after Jesus. So it's worth it. So whether you're... um, thinking about becoming a follower of Christ or whether you've recently become a follower of Christ or if you've been following Him for for many years. We need to have this perspective that if I'm going to follow Christ, I'm called to do what pleases Him and it will be worth it. It's not always going to be pleasant or easy in the short term, but it's better to do what He celebrates and what He honors rather than what the world celebrates and honors because all of us live before His face And all of us will be judged as the world will. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in a moment. Um, For those who are gathered here in the room, we're going to sing uh, a song that we've sung many times before, Wherever He Leads, I'll Go. And I was just, as I was sort of uh, towards the end of the week, trying to think of, uh, you know, the application for the sermon Uh, this morning, that was the song that just kind of kept coming to my mind, wherever he leads, I'll go. Because if you listen to that song, there's the idea that, yeah, yeah, sure, if Jesus calls me to physically go somewhere, I will. But it's not just about wherever he leads me physically, I'll go. It's wherever he leads me in terms of righteousness. Psalm 23, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So as the song says, it may be through shadows dim or o'er a stormy sea. If that's where he leads me, that's where I'll go. And so that's, that's, my, uh, that's my hope for us this morning, that we'll be able to say that wherever he leads, I'll go, and I'll know that it'll be worth it in the end. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word, how you uh, convict us of sin and how you tell us of the righteousness to be found in Christ. And we pray uh, that you would indeed give us that God-centered perspective this morning, Lord, that our desire would be to see as you see, and that our desire would be to do what pleases you rather than what pleases us or what pleases anyone around us. And Lord, that we would live in light of the judgment that is to come. And God, that we would also be mindful that the people we're going to encounter today and this week, they're people who are going to give account to you as well. And so Lord, I pray that... uh, that we would have that mindset as we go about, Lord, that you would open our mouths to, to tell them of the grace to be found in you. And Lord, uh, whoever's listening to my voice right now, I pray, Spirit of God, that you would move in their heart and draw them to repent of their sin and to trust in Jesus. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.